It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, we have long talked about the homelessness problem here in Los Angeles and how there is a need to really, in our opinion, triage the situation, that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution for many people who live on the street, whether it's addiction or mental illness. Dr. Cheyenne Robb is a street psychiatrist with the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, and he is on the ground doing the work that we've talked about has been needed for so long here in Los Angeles, joins us now. Dr. Robb, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, could you explain for us just sort of a, a, a typical day, if there is such a thing, uh, when you're out doing the street-based treatment that you work on for the county? A typical day on the home team. The home team at its very core is an outreach team. Uh, what that means is we have uh, the home team at first is a multidisciplinary team. So we have outreach workers. We have community health workers, we have substance use counselors, we have nursing, and we have a psychiatrist. Now, all of these team members work together to approach um, the, the whole, to, to approach the patients that we have who are on the streets. The first thing that happens is a typical day always starts out with outreach and engagement. We have a list of folks that the home team is following. The outreach workers will go out and attempt to find the individuals who we are working with. That's a huge part of our work is, you know, the people who are living on the streets are not always in the same location. The outreach workers go, they identify the folks that we need to see for the day. After they identify where those people are, other members of the team are recruited in. So nursing will then come in, the nursing will do their own assessments, and then the psychiatrist will come in and do an assessment. Now, these are this is typically for what new patients are like. Once evaluations are completed, uh, medications can be ordered, medications will be sent to a pharmacy, and the pharmacy will then deliver the medications to our office, and then our staff will take the medications and deliver them to the individual who needs them daily. Uh, we'll provide a treatment right there on the streets and observe how the treatments are working, and after that, try and um, get more advanced medications going like a long-acting injection. Once we have those on board, we'll make sure that the mental health symptoms that an individual is dealing with are adequately managed. The whole goal of treatment is that we can stabilize mental health symptoms sufficiently enough to move someone into housing. So what's a typical day look like? The first part is to make sure treatment is taking place and that if there are severe mental health symptoms, we're managing them. What's the second part of the day look like? We use that treatment to stabilize symptoms and move someone into housing so we can get them off the street. Our two primary goals are to provide treatment and provide housing support as fast as possible. Do you find that most people you encounter are, are welcoming of treatment, of a plan? Everyone, you know, that's a, that's a good question because it, it highlights one of the biggest roadblocks we can see in the streets. You know, not, not everybody is going to, you know, see the home team and say, oh, you know, why, why yes, come in and, and help me, you know, with all of with everything that I'm dealing with. A lot of individuals are, are, are suspicious. They might be experiencing paranoia. They might be misinterpreting um, a, a helping hand for a harmful one. So that's why when, you know, when I was describing earlier about the different 
team, uh, the different members of our team, outreach workers are really skilled at going in and building a bond. We have to layer in each team because we don't want to scare someone away by being too medical up front. The outreach workers go and establish a therapeutic alliance, build a bond of trust, um, uh, and then recruit in other members of the team that might be asking more invasive medical questions or providing treatment. So there is a lot of resistance, not, not with everybody, but the whole part of our job is to overcome that resistance by building rapport. We're talking with uh, Dr. Cheyenne Robb, L.A. County Mental uh, Department of Mental Health, who leads the Homeless Outreach and Mobile Engagement Program, the HOME program, as we've been referring to. Um, Dr. Robb, how big is the team right now, and how big would the team have to be for you to see uh, progress or, or acceptable progress in your mind? So when I started out, the home team's been around for, for quite some time, but it's, it's gone through um, many changes until its most current rendition. I joined the home team in 2019. That's around the time when the home team was undergoing a metamorphosis, where it was switching from being a traditional outreach team that was mostly non-medical staff to being a, a team that had a non-medical arm and a medical arm. So both both. Um, both sides could work together to providing treatment and placement. Now, that, that was back in 2019. I, w- I was the first full-time street psychiatrist the county had hired, but each, you know, the county is broken up into eight large service areas. I was just in service area four. Uh, fast forward to three years. So every, every team had the space for a psychiatrist, but we hadn't hired all of the, the, all of the psychiatrists that needed to provide coverage for the entire county. After um, the service area four team, the, the first complete team with me on board began doing its work. The, the model began growing, and the word, I also had the psychiatry residency at the All of You program in, embedded within the program. So we had younger uh, younger doctors in their training kind of coming in, seeing the work, and then joining us when they graduated. So the number of psychiatrists were being recruited by training internally. Now the team is, uh, we went from just one psychiatrist to five full-time psychiatrists, two nurse practitioners. So the team has really grown and there's a footprint of street psychiatry in every single service area. So it's almost a 700% increase from where we started. But the home team uh, is, is not an isolated team. It is part of a much larger model. We have you know, we require interim housing. We require permanent supportive housing. We require teams to step down from step us down from. So not only do we need more folks on the front end of home, but every single part of the home team model beyond the home team with regards to placements also needs to be filled up for us to, for us to be even more effective. So you need more funding, I would assume. Uh, we need, uh, you know, it goes beyond funding. We need we need funding. Housing, we also need yeah. people. The housing, we need also, you know, it's not just doing everything from the streets. I have to routinely interact with the acute care system. So also partnered inpatient hospitals that can uh, that work with the home team, not just a siloed off inpatient unit, but an integrated acute care system that responds to feedback that's coming from the streets and works with the work that's already been done and builds upon it. That's, that's one. And also... Um, 
staff. You know, we have to have more uh, street-based care integrated more into our health education system. Right now, it's very elective, but I'm hoping that it becomes more a required part of training so individuals, health, health workers who are coming out of training, understand the work that's happening on the streets because there, it, it is so complicated it needs to be. We've been uh, talking with Dr. Cheyenne Robb from L.A. County's Homeless Outreach and Mobile Engagement Program, basically a street psychiatrist who's out there talking with some of the people who happen to be homeless in, uh, in L.A. County. Um, and uh, where we left off, I believe, was uh, was the money. Well, there is so much funding that has been, I, I hate to say it, but thrown at this problem. It seems like this is a great place for that money to go to, that you're actually doing the work day to day and and building those relationships when it comes to housing or acute care centers, uh, that the county needs to focus on that, um, those relationships and, and finding the housing to allow you to continue to putting uh, continue putting those success stories up on your uh, office wall there. What does it feel like to tack up another success story in your office? It is, you know, the the work that we do on the home team is is, is very challenging sometimes. You know, we are very proximal to uh, a lot of suffering, and it, it it can you can bring it home sometimes, and it does affect you. However. When we do get to see a success, that's truly how we measure success. We, we, we found someone who was homeless for many, many decades, looking really bad on the streets. So we began working with them. They, they gave us our trust. They accepted our medication. They accepted our model. And they moved from the street into um, a, a transformative housing experience and, and, and in doing so, transformed their lives. And when we see that before and after, that that human life's transformation is is truly is is is, is moving on on a level that motivates us to overcome all of the challenges and roadblocks and setbacks that we you know we see in the in the field. So it is it is truly it is it is truly meaningful. To get a little clinical here, um, you mentioned early on that there are approximately seventy five percent or so of the people that you uh, that you encounter do have some sort of mental health issues that either cause their homelessness there's a huge impact in in whether or not they're going to find shelter seek shelter even are there common disorders that you run across or are there common um symptoms maybe that you see uh, of that 75 percent that you identified so you know the while 75 approximately 75 percent of people may have a mental health condition about 10 percent of those are the severe mental health conditions that the home team deals with the home team specifically deals with schizophrenia spectrum, bipolar spectrum disorders, uh, maybe a um, major depressive disorder with, with psychotic features. The most intense disorders you can have where both um, our thought processes and, and, and mood disturbances are severely present to the point where um, someone is not interpreting information correctly from the environment and their cognitive function is thus impaired because their mental health symptoms are so profound. So, um, hallucinations, delusions, um, impulsivity, poor decision-making, these are all some of the symptoms that um, you, you notice. But in the end, what's more important is what impairments are we seeing at the very end? We're seeing impaired social function, we are seeing uh, uh, an inability to live independently, and we're seeing occupational dysfunction. 
So when these, regardless of what symptoms are coming up, in the end, you're seeing true impairment that keep that, that increase the risk for homelessness. And in some of the patients that we're seeing, it's actually settled in. Of course, we shut down all state hospitals. They were not being run correctly. Um, people were suffering, but there was nothing else that came up in their place. Is that something that you think that we should revisit, a, a way to put together some sort of network and do it right? You know, I think that state hospitals close down for a reason. And what I do think we need is we, we do need an alternative. And I think that that's kind of what we're the direction in which are we as a society are moving in is if people are not in state hospitals, if they're not in inpatient units, if they're not in IM, in, you know, if they're not in locked in locked facilities, where are they? And, and that's kind of what we are building right now. Um, and as we start building more, residential placement options within the community will be able to move people off the streets and into those settings. So I do think community-based settings is, is the way to go. And, uh, but, but getting people into those settings is, you know, those, those, the infrastructure is not really there. My team has been able to build something that allows a mechanism that if you, you to move someone into a community residential setting from the streets, but we do need those pathways to develop and grow up more so we can get people off the streets and into them. One final question, and it's the easiest one. If you had limitless funds, what area of the outreach, whether it's yours specifically or other areas of outreach that need to be done um, that are underfunded right now that would use uh, an, an infusion of, of resources and money? You know, I think any sort of infusion of money that comes into outreach, it cannot be something that's coming into an isolated part. Outreach is just the tip of the spear. It's a, it's, it's, it's the most powerful part of the spear, but it's also just the tip of the spear. Um, outreach allows us an, a mechanism to open the door to what uh, to the to the rest of the system. So if um, if money was to be put into outreach, it would have to be an amount of it would have to be put into outreach just to create um, an entryway into the larger mental health system. But it would have to be diffusely spread. There needs to be something. If money goes into outreach, there needs to be money put into what goes beyond outreach. What's the outreach for? So. I think outreach for the entire population that is experiencing homelessness is important in touching all different, uh, all the different different health conditions that can result in homelessness need to be targeted by outreach. But also, once outreach is successful, what happens then? Where does a, where does an individual move from there? There should be housing, appropriate housing, for each of the each different types of um, people who are experiencing homelessness, so they have a place to go. Dr. Cheyenne, Rob, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the, all the work that you are doing uh, every day out there, actually doing the work. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. In this case, Harvey Weinstein's second criminal trial opened up yesterday. Prosecutors said eight women will testify in court that they were sexually assaulted by this guy. Each of these women, according to Paul Thompson, the prosecutor, each of these women came forward independent of each other, and none of them knew one another. In addition, four women, as we mentioned, will testify as prior bad acts witnesses. So their testimony is going to show a pattern that his pattern was to, uh, you know, be rapey. 
um, and that they will testify about uh, assaults outside of the L.A. jurisdiction. In the defense's opening statements, attorney Mark Worksman described the prosecution's case as a Fire hose of allegations that will all fall apart upon close inspection. He said that Jane Doe 1 and 2 fabricated their stories and that Jennifer Siebel Newsom and Jane Doe 3 had consensual sexual relationships with Weinstein. Um, He went on to say the massive size of the case, the vast number of accusers, is not the result of a carefully investigated, fact-driven prosecution. He said there was no forensic evidence to support any of the allegations. He said the sexual interactions were transactional and consensual. He says it was the casting couch. Everyone did it. He did it. They did it. Because each wanted something from another. And then took aim at Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Specifically, yes. Attacked her credibility, said she's made herself a prominent victim in the Me Too movement. Otherwise, she'd just be another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. Now, as a juror, if I were to hear that, I'd almost be interested in him quantifying that. And as gross and awful and disgusting as it sounds, okay, just one of a, a one of a bunch of bimbos who slept with Harvey. Like, how many are we talking here? And even if Harvey Weinstein has sex with a hundred women consensually, but one without her consent, eh, he's still a rapist. If I'm saying if allegations, but she, so that, to me that doesn't that's not an argument in uh, you know. A, a, an argument in his defense necessarily. She is going to testify. The governor's wife will testify. Yeah. Now, one of the other uh, Jane Doe's did take, I guess she's not a Jane Doe anymore, but one of the uh, the women who took the stand yesterday, Jane Doe number one, uh, was the first witness. She has accused Harvey Weinstein of assault, said she was staying at a hotel in L.A. Uh, for the L.A. Italia Film Festival in February 2013. She gets a call that Harvey Weinstein, whom she barely knows, wants to see her. Well, he shows up to her hotel room. And she says inside her room, she asked him to leave, but he grabbed her by the hair and forced her to perform an act on him. She said, I was crying and choking, and she broke into sobs in court. The judge cut testimony for the day. That's enough. This is going to be emotional. Give you the day, which... I don't know if that's any better. Give you the day to think about it. I'm sure she's probably spent plenty of time in it. So uh, the uh, the issue of of this guy's um, acts, I think, is is going to be well. If the defense argument is that this is just kind of what happens in Hollywood, or I should say, what happened in Hollywood, and he was just playing the game, and they were just playing the game. That's an awful defense. And even if he claims that there's no forensic evidence that ties these, you know, these cases or these uh, sexual acts to force or, you know, without consent, the idea that he was just playing the game is an awful, awful defense. I mean, is and I would be uh, I would be interested. You're right. As a juror. And it's probably purient nature. But to hear evidence that this is just the game in Hollywood. I mean, it's 
It's one of those things we've always assumed, right? We've always assumed it's always been played up in, in yeah. movies and, and to other TV shows and stuff like but that. But to what degree? Like right. how prevalent? How many people engage in this? Is everyone uh, like this? Um, the women allegedly told family members uh, and friends about their assaults. Those people may be called to testify in the trial to confirm or deny such conversations. And again, those conversations don't bring any sort of forensic evidence to the to the party here. But what they do is what's the term for? Is it uh, contemporaneous conversations or something like that where you you. If something happens to you and the next day you come in and you're disheveled and broken and uh, what's the matter with you and mm-hmm. you tell me this horrific thing happens to you, I can look and say, oh, it was October 25th. And your allegation a year later or months later, or whatever it is against whoever did something, you say it happened October 24th and there's no proof. And there's and I say, but wait, the next day she told me about how broken she was and hurt she was. This is like when I got E. coli. Exactly. You remember that day. Well, because I was just sitting here sweating. And you told me to continue to sweat, go home, put on some sweats and go to sleep and sweat this out. uh, And and then my temperature hit 104 degrees and urgent care said you need to come in right away. And had I listened to your advice, I may not be with us. Well, you would have had to sell that bed. I know that. Or just burn it. Um, The uh, the. Other thing is, I told you to drink brandy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Two toots of brandy and call it a night. It's funny because I told my husband the same thing when he had food poisoning. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just a flu. Have a have a shot of whiskey or whatever and go to bed. That didn't make it better. You know what? You and I should probably stop giving people medical advice. Or, or we sort of start a whole new show. Oh, should we yeah. take calls? Medical advice? And have people call in with their ailments and, and we'll give them our advice? I know there are laws against that. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh. So we can't do that. But we did love advice. Not against the law. Hmm. Interesting. Love can't be bound by simple laws of man. It sure can't. Um. <clears throat> so, anyway, uh, that, that's something to watch for. I got an email regarding my fantasy baseball camp. Uh, I'm not going this year, but I I got an email that said that they had changed the format back to basically a week of baseball. They were trying to mix in some golf and stuff like that. Nobody liked the idea. This came up at almost exactly the same time on my computer this morning that I got that email. And it was a story about the... Southern California vintage base. Uh, guess who got another shot? Another COVID shot. Joe Biden. How just, many does that make? Fully he, vaccinated booster, booster, booster person. He's got three boosters. Well, that's a lot of boosters. That's a lot of boosters. So he's going to be Teflon, right? At this point? Or no? I don't know. Because remember. You're never Teflon at that age. He had it after he had two boosters. Fully so, vaccinated booster, booster, booster person. Um, he got the new one. It's supposedly uh, tweaked just a little bit to protect against the variants that were out, oh, nine months ago. So uh, he got his shots today. Let's talk about baseball. That'll make you happy. Have you ever heard of the Southern California Vintage Baseball League? Until this morning. These guys play the game using a rule book from the 1800s. And it comes with unexpected vocabulary. Hands are outs. A striker is a batter. Back in the day, in the 1800s, strikers could declare whether the strike zone was below the waist 
above it or not declare one at all. Now, there was no mound. There was no pitching mound. That came much later. But it's just a rectangle that's marked off with chalk. And it's only 50 feet away from home plate, not 60 feet, 6 inches. The eight-team league includes teams from Riverside, San Bernardino, L.A., and Orange counties. Players are ranging in age from 18 to 60. And they wear the uniforms styled from the late 19th century. Not they, not comfortable. The, no, very <laughs> starchy, I would imagine. They use equipment modeled from that era as well. One of the guys who plays on this league says this is the way it's supposed to be played, baseball. Um, this eight-team league includes eight-team league includes teams from Riverside, San Bernardino, L.A., Orange Counties. You're 18 to 60. Um, the it's the gentleman's game they call it. We try to keep it traditional. They use the terms for those in the crowd. We keep it entertaining for the cranks, bugs, rooters, and the fanatics. Um, One of the guys, Victor, does, he's called the designer Gomez, plays for the Riverside Smudge Pots. He would all, he will arrive hours before the game time to decorate the field. They play at the California School for the Deaf in Riverside. He hangs bunting, banners, and flags to create the illusion of another time. Even sounds from the stands are antique, with someone making noise with a kazoo-like contraption operated by a hand crank. This is one of the other things that's specific about this that is different than the game today that we wouldn't recognize necessarily is if you're the striker, you're the one at bat, you can't move. That so much as a twitch during a pitch, let alone a check swing that you'd have to down uh, appeal down to the umpire at first, a twitch would be called a strike. Oh, the other part is it takes seven balls for you to walk instead of just four. Batters don't wear protective helmets. They are not awarded first base if they are hit. A foul tip caught by the catcher who does not wear shin guards is an out. Did you already say that? No. Oh, okay. And then they said the most obvious difference from modern baseball is the fielder's mitt. It's basically just two pieces of leather stitched together to fit loosely on the player's hand. This is not. Now, the ball is different, too. I mean, it's not the the hard five-and-a-half-ounce baseball that you would see, you know, horse hide uh, stitched together um, today. But that doesn't mean it makes it easier to catch. That's for sure. Zach um, Cap Grelling of the Lordsburg Trolleymen says there's a reason <laughs> why we play every other week. Most guys need the extra week to heal up. He's suffered himself two broken fingers. That's nasty. Um, the reporter who did this, uh, Robert Gautier, who is a, a photographer for the uh, for the L.A. Times, said he got to go out to the outfield, shag a few balls in right field, and said, I could appreciate the odd mechanics of using that old-style glove and thought I had a fly ball lined up for a catch. The ball ticked off the end of my fingers. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> it just sounds painful. And he said you essentially had to get used to catching without having a glove on at all. So the L.A. Times photo editor... Kelvin Koo suggested that Robert, the staff photographer, use a period camera to tell this story. So he said, I was tasked with learning how to make images with an 8x10 camera built near the turn of the 20th century. It's been at least 20 years, he says, since I've operated a film camera, and I've only once before used a bellowed camera. 
So along with the 8x10, I used a 1930s era bullseye brownie with Tri-X film, a 1980s era Lycia, Leica. Leica M6. I failed my photo, my photography class at Chico. <laughs> I was terrible. The Etchachrome film, 20 years past its expiration date, and another camera from the 2000s. I, see, this is, it's one of those things where it, we've talked about the difference between sports and the way that they handle tradition. Um, you know, football has, has its own traditions, but it's, it's different. The storytelling that surrounds baseball is different, partly because for so long, those road trips were just hours and hours and hours on a bus. And even today, if you're playing in the minor leagues, that's what you're basically dealing with is hours and hours and hours of time on a bus. Bull Durham uh, portrayed that very well with uh, uh, what's his face playing the guitar, Nuke Lelouch playing guitar. I love the way this article ends too. Um, baseball has always marked time for me. He writes, the Jackson Fives never can say goodbye played on my sister's 64 Impala radio as we drove to Camp Pendleton Little League Fields in 1971. He says, years later and right out of college, I was shooting alongside the country's most accomplished sports photographers as Steve Garvey cracked a game-winning homer at Jack Murphy Stadium in 1984. I will never forget making the rookie mistake of watching the ball fly over the right field wall instead of focusing my camera on Garvey. I recovered quickly and managed to capture some of the moment on film, but the hard lesson remains with me 38 years later. <laughs> I love that. Um, the uh, the rules are pretty fun to go through and look at. I mean, there's not you have to be a you have to be a giant dork to love this stuff, I feel like. And I don't mind wearing that uh, that hat. I don't mind wearing that hat. <laughs> but there's all kinds of different vintage baseball association leagues around the country, and uh, it would be interesting to uh, man. I would love to. I said that I was talking about this to my wife today because I said this this looks like fun, and you know I love the uniforms, these old uniforms. I love the fact that the guy you know took these uh, just ancient pictures using these ancient cameras, mm -hmm. which evokes the image of well look right here on this computer over here i've got the i've got this old picture of the yankees lined up um yeah. from probably the 20s and they look similar to what these guys look like because they're using the same kind of a camera equipment there uh and i said you know i'd be great but there's no team that's around here you know it's anywhere close to me and she said oh like you wouldn't drive an hour and a half just to right play one of those that's teams. what i was saying so maybe next time i'm in uh i'm in arrowhead i'll stop by and Watch a game. That'd be fun. I mean, you should just move to one of these places. All right. Let's let's. So you can move into my house. There was just an earthquake up in the Bay Area, about twelve miles from San Jose. Five point one. Oh, that's a good one. It's a good one. Look who's getting all shaky up there. That sounds like fun. <laughs> We're gonna do our trending stories. We got Swamp Watch coming up a little bit later, including and look in uh, what we expect from tonight's debate. Between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz up in uh, Pennsylvania. Mm. Right here on Gary and Shannon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.